in Berkeley, KFCF in Fresno, 97.5, K248BR in Santa Cruz, and always online at kpfa.org. Please stay tuned for Cover to Cover Open Book. Hello and welcome to another edition of Cover to Cover Open Book, or as I like to say, Frame to Frame. My name is Raina Cowan and I'll be your host for the next half hour, talking about a variety of films and film subjects. Uh, in the background, we hear some great Cajun music because in a few minutes we'll be talking with Barrier filmmaker Maureen Gosling. Uh, she's worked very closely with the late Les Blank, and his films and her films are going to be having some screenings coming up in February. So we're going to be talking about that. Um, uh, but first, I, I thought I would talk about, well, what's the big topic? Of course, the Oscars. And I thought I would talk a little bit about what, what's happening and my opinion about everything. <laughs> uh, you know... Maybe I'll start in the reverse order, which is how do we find out about what's happening in the Oscars in the business news? Because the Oscars are all about big business. Uh, if something gets nominated, then more people are going to go see that particular film. Uh, uh, the actors uh, who are in the film, the directors wind up getting more pay. So it becomes a very kind of financial situation. So if you happen to look on the paper today, uh, you get to find out what's happening at the Sundance Film Festival. There's a new film. Uh, that it's so interesting. In the business section, they didn't talk anything about uh, whether the film was any good or not, but it's entitled The Birth of a Nation. And it's a film by Nate Parker. It's his first film. He both wrote and directed and plays the lead character in the film. And it's about Walter Turner. It's, I think it's a really important subject. Uh, critics responded with instant rapture, they said. And by Tuesday morning, Fox Searchlight had won the bidding war for the distribution rights by offering a, an astounding $17.5 million for this film, a Sundance record. So it seemed like that all of a sudden this issue about films by, uh, like who gets featured in the Academy Awards, who is nominated, it winds up becoming a business decision rather than a decision about justice or freedom. So I started looking to figure out, well, who are these members who are voting for the particular films? And it turns out that the Academy has 5,765 members. Of those members, 94% are Caucasian and 77% are male. Uh, blacks are 2% of the Academy, and Latinos are less than 2%. Uh, this is from the L.A. Times. So basically, it's a group of working professionals, and nearly 50% of them are actors who have been on screen in the last two years, but membership is generally for life. So there's hundreds of Academy voters who haven't worked on a movie in decades. And it turns out that the Times found that most of the Academy's 15 branches are almost exclusively white and male. It turns out that Caucasians, white males, currently make up 90% or more of every Academy branch, except for those of actors, where the roster is 88% white. 
Uh, the Academy's executive branch is 98% white, and it's as is its writer's branch. And then in terms of the uh, cine- cinematography and visual effects, it's more than 90% men. Of the Academy's 43-member board of governors, six are women, and public relations executive Cheryl Boone Isaacs is the sole person of color. So uh, it turns out that really what we're talking about is a group of people who are making decisions that affect business decisions. Uh, they're making a certain kind of decision, and uh, and different all the different interests are focused on how to make money. So uh, it's it's very complicated. In the past 83 years of the Oscars, less than 4% of the acting awards have been bestowed on African Americans, and only one woman, Catherine Bigelow, has received the Academy Award, and for that was for directing The Hurt Locker. Now, interestingly, the films that get nominated often are not the best films of the year, in my opinion, uh, they're not often the most politically interesting, the most dynamic, the most alive, the most exciting. Um, and and for some reason, those are the ones that get selected because of the skewing of many different things. So it's not a meritocracy. Decisions are made for many different reasons. I thought that it might be useful for me to go through and talk about what I thought were my 2015 films of the year. Um, and just so that you have a sense of, you know, where I, where I think they are and maybe films that you might want to jot down to see. Um, not in a particular order, um, cause I think all of them are very strong for a number of reasons. The first is Carol, uh, the film that actually is still playing in theaters is directed by Todd Haynes and, uh, it, I think, is a stunning film about 1952 life of a, a woman who has, who's lesbian, who has a relationship and doesn't want to give up her drive and what she values most. So uh, it's a very powerful, well-done film based on a Patricia Highsmith novel. Uh, and then we have 45 Years. It's directed by Andrew Hay, who um, I was actually going to interview, and it's been postponed for a little while. He is um, he did Weekend, which was dynamic. Uh, 45 Years hasn't started playing in the East Bay or the San Francisco Bay area yet, uh, but it stars uh, an incredible performance by Charlotte Rampling. She did get nominated for uh, an Academy Award for Best Actress, and I think... Uh, although Kate Blanchett is wonderful in Carol, I think that uh, this role is uh, what she does with 45 years is astounding. Timbuktu is directed by Amrahamene Sisako. It's a French Mauritanian film, and it talks about a time when Timbuktu is under siege. It's a beautiful film. It's done slowly and elegantly and is very dynamic. Really wonderful. <coughs> Uh, there's Iris, which is a cinema verite directed by Albert Mazels. It's his last film, and it, it is a wonderful look at a 90-year-old woman who is a fashion icon. Uh, Amy, another documentary directed by Asif Kapadia, looks at Amy Winehouse, and I think it's a really exquisite look at her life and a very sad story because it looks at how her fall is so uh, explicitly tied to the way that uh, the media 
became interested in her and started following her around and, um, you know, wonderful. So uh, then I would go to Mommy, which is a Canadian film directed by Xavier Dolan. Um, you might have heard from him in that he did the the film Hello, uh, well, you know, the, if you're watching it on YouTube by Adele. Uh, really interesting film about a very out of control teenage boy and his relationship with his mother. Wolfpack, directed by Crystal Moselle, another documentary. Mommy wasn't a documentary. And it looks at a, a group of boys who've been raised uh, by their father and mother, and they were only allowed to go out of the house once, uh, really, you know, once a year. Very exquisite film. Jafar Panahi's Taxi, which is an Iranian film. Amazing. Laurie Anderson's Heart of a Dog. Uh, Phoenix, which is a German film directed by Christian Petzold, and it looks at... Uh, the Holocaust in a new way of a woman who comes back after uh, the war in 1945 and uh, meets again her husband from before. Very strong film. Mustang that I reviewed last time and interviewed the director, Denise Gamiza Arguven. It's still in theaters. It's a French-Turkish co-production. Um, Heaven Knows What, which is a film by Ben and Joshua Softy. They are brothers and they make a really interesting film about heroin addicts in New York City. A woman wrote a book about her story, and then she stars in the film, although it is a, a feature narrative film, not a documentary. And then last but not least, Paddington by Paul King, which is a really entertaining film about <laughs> the stuffed bear. So that's sort of my rundown of films. And now um, I want to introduce... Uh, who we're going to speak to today, Maureen Gosling. She's a Bay Area filmmaker. She is both a director and an editor. And uh, I think that she got her start working with uh, Les Blank many, many years ago. And there's going to be these wonderful screenings at the Balboa Theater. Uh, Garlic is as good as Ten Mothers, Always for Pleasure, and Yum, Yum, Yum. So, welcome to KPFA. Thank you. So, uh, you know, Les died not that long ago. Uh, I don't know if you've watched any of his films since then, but I was wondering what you see as his legacy in his films. He was also a, a Berkeley filmmaker. Well, the the films have a spirit to them and a kind of stream of consciousness rather than a very chronological or organized kind of editing style and the what I learned from him and what I learned early on from him was how value how much he valued feeling in the experience of a film and he really that's really what he was going for he was wanting people to he wanted to share the experience of being someplace or with certain people in a way that was visceral rather than informational the information you get as you go along but it what you really get is an experience of the place and the people and that definitely shows up in um especially always for pleasure and um yeah of the three films that are showing probably always for pleasure is the best of, of the ones for that well so if we think about how he was like when he would go to a location often with you uh, and with chris simon perhaps uh 
How did he make contact with people? What was he looking for? What was he noticing before he even started filming? He often did have contacts with people beforehand. Uh, on an, on occasion, he would have done some um, either visits or had been to the place before, and that's what inspired him to want to make the film in the first place. But he would start with a certain number of people that he knew, and then while we were there, uh, we would be meeting people all the time, and it, it always felt as if we started with a small core of people, and it just expanded. It grew like a web, and, and it was fun because you never really knew who you were going to meet, so it wasn't so planned, and it made for a lot of surprises. So when would you start filming? Uh, after you met all the people, or would you film and then meet someone else? Yeah, it was more sort of as we went along. I mean, when I, when I was involved, I I was interested in maybe being a little more organized, like having lists. <laughs> I don't know if Les ever made lists, but I would make a list certainly of, especially when, when we were meeting people or whatever, I would make a note, oh, we really need to catch this or catch that. And um, sometimes I think he would... I think his philosophy was that he, if he had the camera with him as just part of his self, then people would know that the camera was part of him. And so it wasn't a strange thing if he just had the camera there. He didn't immediately start filming all the time. And usually he would, interestingly, he would start farther back in a situation. And the the more we were there, the longer we were there, the more he would sort of get closer and closer. And I think part of it was just how he was feeling about the thing and getting more and more involved. But it it also paid off in the editing because then you would have a long shot and a close-up with um, one camera. Oh, that's so interesting. Well, you know, it's funny because you said that he would go somewhere and the camera would be like with him. You know, I've met him many times over the years, and I never found him very sort of socially related. You know, he's he's very kind of awkward, internal. So, yet, he was able to capture so much. So, do you think he was both, like, with one eye observing and another trying to be in contact with people? Yeah, yeah. And sometimes it meant that the people that we filmed would be the ones who were a little bit more vivacious or more gregarious because they wouldn't even pay attention to the fact that he was shy and they would just come up and engage with us and he also i think rather than being like some tv crews where they come in and kind of rearrange the furniture set up lights and make you feel totally self-conscious and and, um, uncomfortable he would he really didn't want to disturb the situation and was you know quiet and um, you know, interacted when he wanted to meet people, but he, you know, didn't like barge in and make himself known. And a lot of, I think a lot of, especially a lot of TV c- camera folks <laughs> do that. <laughs> so uh, when you were editing these pieces uh, and you were trying to come up with a story of how things go together, uh, what do you think the strengths in what Les was doing came out in that moment well we would start with the material itself and know that that was what our limitation was it also meant that um 
that helped us focus because we wouldn't be trying to do all these extra things that we'd have to go do research about and bring them in and so forth. We were working with what we had and sometimes the footage would get eliminated if you know the, the lighting was bad or the sound was bad and that would start to reduce it and then um just making little sequences and making connections between sections and feelings and trying to um gauge how the arc of the feeling was i mean people talk about story arcs these days and even though we didn't have like a story per se that was really obvious um the feeling arc was there for sure and sometimes um we would you know when we got the footage we would start with uh we would know what scene we want to start with because it was pretty clear and then other times we didn't know until really close to the end what we want to start with but it it really was a uh it's like doing a necklace you know bead by bead and um and then moving them around as well if they weren't working the garlic film was kind of an interesting uh story we had a work in progress screening it was the first one i'd ever had and so i was really nervous because um less edited a lot of the film but then he let me he turned it over to me and um so i was doing quite a bit of the editing on that and we had the screening and <laughs> somebody uh, the people were cr- critical and i started really crying because i d- i didn't know how to deal with criticism but and one of th- an idea came out of that screening that totally helped us reconceive the film the person said um what if you switched reels what if you put the first reel last and the last reel first and it totally gave us an idea of how to structure the film it starts so it starts out with all of the cultural attachments and and folklore and color and and stories and food around garlic but it ends with harvesting the garlic and getting back to the the where the food comes from and the people who pick the you know the garlic and harvest it and process it and it's kind of a wonderful um refreshing feeling when you get to the end you get down to the core of the food and it allowed us to actually make a commentary about the you know the value of farm workers and the work they do and so forth so that was an interesting process do you have a clip from that film i do um so i have given her a different order but if you can put on number 3 um this is uh part of the film where this wonderful flamenco singer who has since passed away but lived in Berkeley for quite a while Ansonini del Puerto um was in our film and he's he dances with a braid of garlic and sings sings about the garlic and um I can't remember what comes right after that but um we can hear we can hear it and then we can respond. talk yeah mm-hmm. okay Get it! 
a tu In Europe, they laugh at Americans who are into garlic because they've been into garlic for for thousands of years. You know, it's the American Puritan Anglo thing that has held garlic addiction down until very recently. And now all the old structures that have held America together are falling apart politically, religious-wise. In every category, everything's falling apart. And people are looking to the old ways, uh, the traditional folk basic historical roots of what it is to be a human being and garlic figures very substantially in that garlic is one of the foods the nourishments the medicines that has been at the very foundations of civilization it's so interesting garlic is good as 10 mothers we're with maureen gosling this is a film uh by her and les blank you know it's so funny because uh, I, I guess i have two questions the first is about the music and how music is used. And then second is um, how probably when he said, whoever talked, said that line about garlic, it probably seemed really relevant and now it seems so didactic. <laughs> you know, it seems like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> We've come so far. I guess like garlic, you don't have to like get on the soapbox about garlic anymore. That's true. <laughs> this was this film was made in the late, late 70s and it was inspired less... Uh, was friends with Alice Waters when she was just getting started and she started having, with having these garlic dinners on the 4th of, 14th of July celebrating Bastille Day. She still does it. And Les would go to these dinners and he thought they were really great and it got him inspired to do a film about garlic and he never thought it would get off the ground but we filmed two or three years at the restaurant and then we just started expanding it and um, it was a real wonderful chance to incorporate the music of the cultures of the food that we were filming and and that made it really fun not only tasty we got to eat all the food that we were filming but we got to both hear the music that was at some of the events and we also got to look for music that fit with the foods you know, like the Mexican music that's in the film has wonderful Mexican music with it and Cajun food and so forth so uh, so that's really interesting so that the music actually I mean when I think of his films it's the music that actually carries them in a way a lot yeah, of it. yeah they definitely it's definitely a really important part and it's both uh, part so in some cases we use the lyrics of the songs very specifically because they can tell part of the story I did that in my film Blossoms of Fire as well and it helps to also give insight into the culture where we are filming because though that's the word of the people there and it's it relates to their preoccupations and interests and loves and and it also um is a way for you to participate in that culture right because i think before that i mean i don't know it, i mean certainly in other countries there were pe filmmakers who uh 
engage with this, but at least here, or at least in my third grade class, the ethnographic films were like the people of Louisiana, blah, blah, you know, and this, the, with this sort of narration and this sort of outside look and this, uh, this idea of them being other in some kind of way. It seems like that that's what these films really played with as they broke that down. I think so. That's one thing that I really, really appreciate about it. First films that I saw of Les's when I first met him, I just thought they were poetry. And I always wanted to continue to make films like that. So do you have another clip for us? Sure. Let me play some. Let's play something from um, Always for Pleasure. We can do the one that's the clip that's called Second Line, which was number one. And I'm. One of the reasons that I wanted to play it was uh, Alan Toussaint is briefly in it. He recently passed away, and he was one of the great musicians in New Orleans, a wonderful guy. And and um, we briefly got to do an interview with him at the time. And then he talks about the importance of sec- the second line in New Orleans culture. Okay. I've heard. So, um, yeah. Anyway, and I just wanted to say one little thing. It's the day after Mardi Gras, which is Ash Wednesday, which is usually the day that you sort of give everything up after Mardi Gras. But if you have already celebrated Mardi Gras and want to extend it a little bit, this is a good thing to do. <laughs> That's great. And I, I can't end the show without talking about something. One of the, my favorite places to go to of all 
all times as Pacific Film Archives in Berkeley. And uh, they're opening as of tomorrow. There's a big uh, four days of opening events with Sunday being one that's open to the public. And Pacific Film Archive itself is going to be open for programs uh, at their new place, 2155 Center Street in downtown Berkeley. Uh, on February 10th, the same day, you can see Alan Berliner's film, which uh, is very interesting, First Cousin Once Removed at Pacific Film Archive. My name is Raina Cowan, and uh, you've been listening to Cover to Cover, Open to Book, Frame to Frame, and I will see you next month talking more about film. And Maureen, thank you so much for being here with the spirit of Mardi Gras behind us and uh, wonderful music and uh, tribute to Les Blank. Thank you. Ross is coming to Berkeley to discuss his explosive new book, Blackball, The Black and White Politics of Race on America's Campuses. Lawrence exposes the deep racist traditions throughout America's white fraternity and sorority system. He also describes other racist practices now occurring on college campuses across the country and calls for radical changes. KPFA and Hard Knock Radio's own Davey D will be in conversation with Lawrence on Wednesday evening, February 3rd, starting at 7.30 at First Congregational Church in Berkeley, 2345 Channing Way, just one block from the Cal campus. There is wheelchair access at this KPFA benefit. Get advance tickets at brownpapertickets.com or at indie bookstores. There's more info on the KPFA website for February 3rd, Lawrence Ross. It is 4 o'clock here at KPFA 94.1 FM.